Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and the Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. Indeed, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and standing before the angel. And he spoke and said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again he said to him, See, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, and if you will perform my service, then you will also govern my house, and also have charge of my courts, and I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who are sitting in front of you. Indeed, they are men who are a symbol. For behold, I am going to bring in my servant, the branch. For behold, the stone that I have set before Joshua. On one stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Would you bow with me in prayer, please? Our Father, we thank you for the revelation of your word. Even as we have already prayed this morning with gratitude for the revelation of your salvation in which you have promised to save Israel. And while you are waiting to save Israel because of their disobedience, you have also enfolded us into your salvation. It's so humbling that he, we who were outside, we who were separated from you, We who not only wanted nothing to do with you and hated you, but we who were outside the promises that you had made to Israel, you've brought us in and you've saved us. What magnificent grace we have received. And as we look at this vision that you revealed some 2,500 years ago, And brought encouragement to the nation of Israel. So might we likewise also receive encouragement and hope by what we read in it this morning. Might you make us to be thankful people, worshipful people, because of what you have revealed to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I've told the story before, but... 
because it fits with this passage so well, and because next Sunday is Reformation Sunday, and frankly, because I like the story, I'm going to tell it again. It's the story of Martin Luther's conversion. In his own hand, he writes this. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God. He's quoting from Romans 1.18. Because I took that justice to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. And then I grasped That the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning. And whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, Now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God. For faith leads you in and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon his fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see him rightly, but looks only on a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. What plagued Luther was an awareness of his guilt of sin. In fact, he was such a regular uh, attendee at the confessional booth that as he was one day going on through the litany of all his sins, the priest on the other side of the booth finally said something like, Luther, go away until you finally commit some real sin and then come and confess it. He was just plagued by a conscience that was convicting him of so much sin and an inability to be righteous. He longed to serve God. He wanted to be used by God, but he was terrified of God's wrath. And perhaps you have experienced similar fears, an awareness of your guilt and unworthiness and a similar awareness of your inability to do anything right, to commend you to God, to make you right with him. If that's your condition, Zechariah 4 
Zechariah 3, vision 4 is for you. There is a transition in this vision. We have seen three earlier visions of Zechariah. Those three visions were concerned with external realities, if you will. They were concerned about Israel's liberation from Babylon. They were concerned about God's justice towards the nations, that God would be just in punishing the nations. And they were concerned about the blessings that would come to Israel as the fulfillment of the covenantal promises that they would enter into the millennial kingdom and experience all of his blessing. They were concerned with external realities. This vision is concerned with internal spiritual realities. This vision addresses the question, how will unclean and unholy people experience the blessing of God? How can those who are stained with unrighteousness be blessed by the holy God? Here's what we're going to discover. That God comforts sinners by the removal of their sin through the promised Messiah. Remember that all of these visions are given as a comfort to Israel. And here the comfort is an internal comfort that they will be comforted spiritually by the removal and the eradication of sin. And ultimately and finally, as this vision demonstrates, all those things coming through the promised Messiah. God comforts sinners by the removal of their sin through the promised Messiah. Well, let's look at this vision and see, first of all, what Zechariah saw in the vision. What did Zechariah see? The first two visions that we saw in chapter 1 were visions that were outside Jerusalem location-wise. The third vision is in Jerusalem. And this vision takes us into the center of Jerusalem, into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and ultimately into the throne room of God Himself. So the the location of this vision has changed dramatically. Yet note the beginning, verse 1, then he showed me Joshua. And again, I noted previously that all of these visions start with the word and or then. It's a conjunction that's connecting them. So while there are eight visions, they're all connected visions designed to build on one idea of God's provision and comfort for his people. The main character in this vision is Joshua, the high priest. He showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing. This is Joshua, the high priest. This is not Joshua who led Israel into the promised land. That event took place nearly a thousand years prior to this vision. This Joshua was a real man. He was among the first returnees from Babylon to Jerusalem Um, and is often mentioned in conjunction with Zerubbabel, who was the governor of Jerusalem and Judah. We find that in Ezra chapter 2. These are the people of the province who came up out of captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away into Babylon and returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own city. These came with Zerubbabel, Yeshua, Nehemiah, and on. So he mentions him second in the list. That chapter that's just filled with names and you kind of scan through really quickly when you're going through your read through the Bible program. Joshua is mentioned second and he is mentioned in conjunction with Zerubbabel. Though they had separate responsibilities, they seemingly had equal importance in the nation of Israel. 
Joshua is mentioned several times, not only in Zechariah, but also in Haggai, the parallel book to Zechariah and Ezra and Nehemiah. His father, we know, is Jehozadak, and he was among the first people that went into captivity in Babylon in 586 B.C., So when the nation returned in 538 and Joshua went back with them, Joshua may well have been 50 or perhaps even older than 50 if he was born prior to going into captivity. And now they went back. He was among those who first returned in 538. It's now 519. Almost 20 more years have passed. So Joshua may have been in the neighborhood of 70 years of age at the time of this vision. Despite his age, he was instrumental in erecting the altar, restoring the sacrifices, and organizing the, the, the work of rebuilding the temple. So we find in Ezra chapter 3, then Yeshua, Joshua, the son of Josedak, and his brothers, the priests, And Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel and his brothers, arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So there we find Joshua fulfilling his calling as high priest, organizing the reinstitution of the sacrifices and doing everything that he should be doing as the high priest. Chapter, excuse me, verse eight of that same chapter. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedach, and the rest of their brothers and the priests and the Levites who came from the captivity to Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Then Joshua and his sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons and the sons of Judah and the sons of Henadad with their sons, the and the brothers and the Levites to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. So he is, he is driven. He's reinstituting worship. He wants to see the temple completed. He is instrumental in the reorganization of Israel and their worship. Even more importantly, as the vision tells us, he is the high priest. The priests had three levels of hierarchy the Levite, the priest, and the high priest, who is known dominantly in the New Testament as the chief priest. In that priestly hierarchy, Joshua's at the top. The position was hereditary. He was a direct descendant of Aaron through Eleazar, and that position was for life. We know from Exodus 29, and we won't take the time to go through there this morning, but we know from Exodus 29 that all the priests were consecrated for their service. All of them were anointed. But the high priest received a unique attire and was particularly called to a holy life. If you look at Leviticus chapter 21, he speaks about the responsibility of the priesthood in Leviticus 21, starting in verse 1 to not be defiled, to maintain cleanness and purity for readiness to carry out their role and responsibility. So verse 1 of Leviticus 21, No one shall defile himself for a, dead, with a, for a dead person among his people except for his relatives who are nearest to him, so on. For nine verses, it goes through the responsibilities of the priests to maintain their ritual purity. Then verse 10, 
the priest, who is the highest among his brothers, that is the high priest, on whose head the anointing oil has been poured, and who has been consecrated to wear the garments, that is the garments that go only to the high priest, shall not uncover his head, nor tear his clothes, nor shall he approach any person, nor defile himself, even for his father or his mother. And then it goes on to continue his responsibilities to maintain his purity. So there was a unique calling for the high priest. There's a standard that is set for him, for purity, for righteousness, and for ritual cleansing. That was essential in large part because among the most important responsibilities of the high priest is that once a year on the Day of Atonement, he went into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the nation. And he would take blood and he would pour the blood on the Ark of the Covenant for his own personal sins and for the sins of the nation. He stands as a representative for the entire nation. Says one writer about the high priest's role. He was the very essence of purity. The standard was remarkably high. The role essentially important. Both in his personal conduct and his ritual cleansing. He was to be set apart and distinct for his ministry. So there's Joshua, verse 1. That's who he is, the high priest. Where is he? He is standing before the angel of the Lord. We'll flesh this out in just a moment, but we see that as being the pre-incarnate Christ. And verse 4 gives us understanding of that, that it can be no one but Christ. He is standing before Christ and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. The word Satan is not just a name, but it is a title. It is a word that means accuser. And in this particular instance, it's used with the article. So it says the Satan or the accuser. So it points not just to who he is our arch enemy, but appoints to what he does, he accuses. So both in his name, accuser, and in his position at the right hand of Joshua, in the courtroom of God, at the throne of God, he is standing to make accusation against Joshua. He stands there much as he did when we find him making accusation against Job in Job 1 and 2. This is Satan, the great accuser, the great enemy of God's people. Of all of our enemies, Satan is especially opposed to God's people. And the accusation that he brings is that Joshua is unfit. Why? Because, verse 3, Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. It's not, just, it's not just that there was a little blood splattering on the garments. The word filthy 
is a word that means excrement. He's been rolling in dung, as it were. It's not just that he's a little unclean. He is wholly unfit for the task. While the high priest had unique garments and a unique turban, this was the full antithesis of that. He could not be clothed more unrighteously or wrongly for the task. He's completely unfit, unclean. He's 70 years old-ish, had a long ministry and service, and he is entirely unfit for the ministry and for the service to which he's been called. And don't forget what else is going on here. As the high priest, he is representative of the nation. The high priest wore a breastplate, and on that breastplate were 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when he walks into the Holy of Holies, it is, as it were, as if the entire nation is walking in with him. And on that day of atonement, when he is sprinkling blood, he's not just sprinkling blood for himself, he's sprinkling blood for everyone. He is acting for the nation. And for the accusation to be, he is unfit, he is unclean, is to not only say Joshua is unclean, it is to say the nation's unclean and the nation is unfit. Says one writer, the opposer opposes the high priest by dwelling on the sins of the people of Israel that God might cast them from his presence irrevocably and forever. The picture is dark indeed. For how can the nation stand in the light of the accusations of the adversaries? Adversary, singular. How despondent. Zechariah must have been to see that initially. What's interesting here is that while Joshua is the object of accusation, he never speaks in this vision. In fact, while Satan speaks, we know he speaks because he's making accusation, we never hear Satan's words either. There are only two, three speakers. There is God, in, actually two speakers, God in heaven, Christ in heaven, and Joshua that we'll see in just a moment. The accusation is made against him. Notice verse 2. Satan standing his right hand accusing. And before Joshua can rebut, the Lord said to Satan. I take that to be not the Lord, the first person of the Trinity, but the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the angel of the Lord, I take that primarily because he says, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. It would be unusual for the first person of the Trinity to say the first person of the Trinity rebukes you. So I think it's the second person of the Trinity, Christ, the angel of the Lord, speaking about the Lord of hosts, the first person of the Trinity, rebuking Satan. The basis of the rebuke, I want you to notice is based on the authority of God as God. The Lord rebuke you. 
In fact, we know from Jude that even Michael, the archangel, even the highest of the angels refuses to rebuke Satan. That's a position and a responsibility for God alone. Only God has authority over him. And notice as well who it is that's doing the rebuking. The Lord, that is the covenant God. If you have a Bible like mine, that word Lord is in lowercase caps or small caps, right? That indicates it's the word Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. So the God who has made the covenant with Israel and is committed to his covenant with Israel rebukes Satan. In fact, he reiterates that in the next phrase. Indeed, again, I say it again, the Lord Yahweh, the one who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you, the one who has set aside Jerusalem to be the covenant place in which he will rule for the millennium and then into eternity. That's the one who's rebuking you. The one who has made the promises, that's the one who is rebuking you. And what does it mean to rebuke him? It's a denunciation, a threat, perhaps even a curse against Satan. There could not be a stronger way to say, you are wrong and you have no authority to make that accusation. There's a final reiteration of his rebuke of Satan and his protection of Joshua. The angel of the Lord says this, is this not, speaking about Joshua, is this not a brand plucked from the fire? We find a similar kind of statement in Amos chapter 4, where God says, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, speaking about Israel, and you were like a firebrand snatched from the blaze, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I saved you. I pulled you out of the fire. I pulled you out of destruction to use you, and you have not returned to me, he says in Amos 4. Similarly, he says about Joshua, I pulled him out of the fire out of the fire of condemnation, as it were, and preserved him. But again, he's not just speaking about, about Joshua, is he? He's speaking about the whole nation. And we know that from Amos chapter 4, the nation is seen to be one that is plucked. And we also know that Joshua stands as a representative for the entire nation. So when he says, I've, I've pulled this one out, yes, Joshua particularly, but representative of the entire nation nation it looked like everything had been lost but God intervened with his grace and pulled Joshua and the nation out and said you're mine and I will use you notice this God does not defend Joshua And rebuke Satan by saying this. You're wrong, Satan. He's not filthy. He's not unrighteous. He is clean. He is fit. That's not what he says. He says, I've plucked him out. By grace, I've reached in and I've pulled him out. And I have made him useful. He defends Joshua 
by saying that his grace is more than sufficient for any accusation and any guilt. Listen, brothers, what God has chosen and saved from destruction cannot be revoked. You've got to live there. If you are in Him, no accusation can be made against you that can stick. Christ has removed it and you've been taken out of the fire and made useful. This statement, is this not a brand plucked from the fire, should be a massive encouragement to us for our own salvation and a reminder that God is our defender and our preserver as well. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Why? Because they're like a a brand that's been plucked from the fire. And Christ now says, mine. And the accusation doesn't stick. Even when we are guilty, our hope is not in a personal rebuttal to Satan. Our hope is in the grace of Christ. That's what Zechariah saw. What did it mean? Verses 4 and 5. He spoke, again, the angel of the Lord, and said to those who were standing before him, those who were standing before him, who, okay, remember, we're in the throne room of God. Who's in the throne room of God? Well, God Almighty, the God of the universe, second person of the Trinity, third person of the Trinity. Who else? Angels, right? Around the throne. And so I think here he's talking in verse 4, those who were standing before him, the angels that were standing around, viewing, watching. And God speaks, Christ speaks to them saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Well, the angel of the Lord has defended Joshua. Joshua's uncleanness still needed to be addressed. What were the implications of his uncleanness? And who would deal with the filthiness of his garments? And so the angel of the Lord intercedes for that. And he says, remove the filthy garments from him. Notice he doesn't say to Joshua, Joshua, make yourself clean. Go to to the dry cleaner and get yourself cleaned up. This is God monergistically acting on Joshua's behalf. That is, God and God alone is acting. God and God alone is cleaning and cleansing. It is clear from Leviticus 22, that if any priest is not ritually clean, then he not only is unusable for service, but he will be cut off from the Lord. Leviticus 22, 2 and 3, tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, 
If any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. It's no small thing. And remember, he is standing there as a representative of the people. And because he is unclean, they also are unclean. In fact, Haggai makes that very point. Haggai 2.14. And it's even worse than that. Because he is unclean. And because they are unclean, they need to go to the temple and have someone to intercede for them. And the one who intercedes for them, the high priest, is unclean and incapable of interceding. They're stuck. Their earthly mediator is gone. What can be done? And God removes Zechariah, excuse me, Joshua's unclean clothing. God acts to take away and to put off the defilement. And not only that, he clothes him, the end of verse 4, with festal robes. Verse 5, a clean turban and new garments. He takes away the uncleanness and grants to him cleanness. He takes off and he puts on. It almost sounds like our salvation, doesn't it? Wherein God takes away our unrighteousness and declares us to be righteous in the clothing of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4. You did not learn Christ in this way, the way of the Gentiles, if indeed we have heard him and been taught in him. That is, he's talking there about conversion. That in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceits. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. God created you in righteousness and holiness by taking away the sin and giving you new clothing of righteousness. And that's exactly what he's exemplifying in Joshua. Now to this point in the vision, the only problem so far, though it's a massive one, seems to be his ritual uncleanness He's not fit to serve as priest. And then notice what the angel of the Lord, Christ our Savior, says. Remove the filthy garments from him. Middle of verse 4. Again, further, he said to him, See, I have taken your iniquity away from you. It's not just that you are ritually unclean. The further part of the problem is that you were also a sinner. You were guilty of iniquity. That word iniquity refers to perverse acts of deliberate sin. It's the same word that is used in the day, on the Day of Atonement when the sins were placed on the head of the scapegoat goat and the scapegoat was led into the wilderness, it's that word that's used for the sins of Israel. It's rebellion. It's 
It's volitional, intentional sin, and it is culpability. You are guilty. And the picture in the scapegoat is that the guilt is being taken away, removed, put in the wilderness where God won't find it and won't see it again. It's vanquished. And God here acts in a similar way for Joshua and says, I'm removing your sin and I'm removing the guilt of your sin. He's been acquitted before the Lord. And don't miss this. As the representative of the nation, he is also being acquitted for the nation, for the sake of the nation. And we'll see that in just a moment again in verse 9. And notice who it was that did the acquitting. See, I have taken your iniquity away from you. Who's the I? The angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord? Christ. That's why it has to be Christ, because only Christ has the ability to remove sin. 500 years and change. Before he went to the cross, Christ, the angel of the Lord, says to Joshua, I've removed your sin, parentheses, understood, on the basis of what I will do on the cross for you. It's an amazing statement. And the angel of the Lord makes that declaration, verse 5, then I said, Zechariah just can't hardly stand it. And he interjects himself into the vision. And now Zechariah speaks. You can, just, you can just feel the excitement in him, I hope. He sees what happens. He sees the cleansing the readiness of Joshua to be able to go back into the temple and into the Holy of Holies. He sees the removal of sin and he's just overwhelmed. And he says that I said, let them, the angels, put a clean turban on his head. And so they put a clean turban on his head and they clothed him with garments. There is a similarity of dress between the priests and the high priests. But there is something distinctive about the turban that the high priest wore. Exodus 28 tells us about the high priest's turban. You shall also make a plate of pure gold and you shall engrave it like the engravings of a seal that says this, Holy to the Lord and you shall fasten it on a blue cord and it shall be on the turban it shall be at the front of the turban and when he gets that turban it's not just a headdress it is a declaration he's holy to the Lord the holiness is removed unholiness is removed And he is restored to a right standing with God and a right position before God to serve him. So Zechariah makes this request. And did you notice the end of the verse? He makes the request, the angels act, while the angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord was standing by. 
He doesn't say it explicitly, but it seems really clear that he means he's standing by watching with approval. I agree. This is what needs to be done. And again, remember the context of this vision. The nation has returned to the land. They went back in about 538 B.C. The foundation of the temple was quickly laid and for about 15 more years, nothing was done. The nation had sinned tremendously in not rebuilding the temple. They were acting in fear. They were distrusting the Lord. And this vision promises God to provide for the cleansing of the priests, for the temple work, and to restore the nation to himself spiritually. In spite of your sin, you're still my people, and I'm in the process of restoring you, and I will keep you. This vision is about the restoration of the priesthood. It's the restoration of Joshua, but it's also about the justification of his people. God will act First three visions for the physical provision of his people and he will act for the spiritual provision of his people. He will give them exactly what they need. Oh, brother and sister, there is a remarkable consistency about God's salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. God is committed to his people and will save his people. And my friend, if you are here this morning and you are not one of God's people, if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you are not one of His children, oh friend, I urge you and compel you, you need cleansing just like Joshua did. Your standing won't save you. It's filthiness to Him. Your position, your wealth, your humility won't save you. This vision reminds us that salvation is always impossible for the sinner to accomplish on his own. Salvation always has to do with God alone acting to declare unrighteous sinners righteous. It's his work. That righteousness is always imputed to sinners by the act of God through the work of Christ. And if you have not experienced the cleansing work of God to remove your sin, if you're not a Christian, I appeal to you to seek the forgiveness of God. You are culpable. Just like all of us have been culpable before God. And He will judge you. And there is nothing you can do to remove your guilt. The only thing you can do is to appeal to God and trust, as Joshua did, the righteous work of someone else for you. And trusting Him, trusting Christ, you will be saved. Oh, friend, if you're not, if you're not a Christian, would you, would you walk away from your sin and walk to Christ and say, would you be mine? And He will cleanse and restore you. That's the vision. That's what the vision meant. Now let's see in verses 6 through 10, some implications of God's salvation. What, what did Zechariah's visions reveal about God? And I find in these verses at least three significant implications. One is this. God's cleansing, cleansing act of justification necessitates corresponding acts of obedience. 
So in verses 6 and 7, we find the Lord, again, probably the angel of the Lord, admonishing Joshua. Remember, Joshua has just been cleansed. And this is, this is a charge. This is a reminder. Joshua, just because you've been cleansed doesn't mean you can go back to rolling around in whatever you were rolling around in to make you unclean. And so Christ, the angel of the Lord, makes a conditional statement with two requirements. Notice what he says, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways, that's the first condition, To walk in your ways is a common, generic Old Testament command about obedience. It refers to covenantal fidelity, faithfulness. It refers to being faithful to God's commands, God's requirements, doing what God has called you to do, being obedient to Him. If you will walk in my ways, and then secondly, if you will perform my service. That refers to His priestly duty. If you'll do what I've called you to do in your role as the priest. You're doing the things that will keep you clean. And so those, those two commands, those two requirements, affirm that he has moral, that's obedience, and ritual responsibilities, his service within the temple. And they relate both to Joshua as an individual and as a representative of the nation. Remember, he's standing in for the nation. So this isn't just God speaking to Joshua. It's God speaking to Joshua and to the nation. This is, this is for everybody. You have a responsibility to forsake sin and be obedient to me and to fulfill your calling over me. Over you. Fulfill your calling to me. And if that's done, Then there are three blessings. Then you will also govern in my house. I think speaking to Joshua here simply means you will have authority in the temple. You'll you'll have the authority that's fitting for you as a priest. If you're obedient, fulfill all your duties, then you'll be able to have governing authority within the temple, fulfilling all of the role. And you will have charge of my courts. That is, you will have, you'll have influence beyond the temple. And, and in this day, we didn't talk about it earlier, but in this day, the high priest wasn't just responsible for temple duties, but we see him having further governing influence in the community of Israel. And I think that's what he's talking about here. You'll have charge of my courts beyond just the temple, just beyond, beyond just the, the practices in which you're carrying out the sacrifices on the altar and so on. You'll have political and social effectiveness. And then he says, I will grant you free access among those who are standing here. You can walk around with those who are standing here. Where's the, where are the people who are standing? Who are the people that are standing They're the same people that were standing before him in verse 4 that removed the filthy garments. They're the same individuals that put the clean turban on the head of Joshua and clothed him with garments. They're the angels of heaven. So watch what God is saying. If you're faithful and if you obey, I will give you access, not just to the Holy of Holies as the high priest, but I will give you access 
to the very throne room of God where the angels reside. This absolutely had to astound Joshua and Zechariah. This is unheard of in the Old Testament. One priest, once a year, can go to the Holy of Holies and now he's saying, the priest can go into the throne room of God and not just the priest. Remember, he's, he's interceding for the nation. He's saying the nation will have access to the throne room of God. It's, it's an absolutely overwhelming promise. And it's a promise that is reiterated to us as New Testament believers. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, Therefore, since we have a high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is exactly the promise that's being made to Joshua. There are responsibilities of obedience, but there are massive blessings that come from obedience. We, we talk about the cost of obedience. What's it going to cost you? What are you going to have to give up? We need to think about the blessing of obedience. What do you get when you're obedient? This is what you get. You get access to God and fellowship with God, intimacy with Him as your friend and as the one who has bought you. Like Joshua, we dare not think that we can roll around in the refuse of the world and then march into the presence of God and say, I demand intimacy. You can't come with uncleanness. But you can come with your uncleanness and say, would you clean me? And would you bring me in? And he will cleanse you and have fellowship with you. Second implication, verses 8 and 9, God's cleansing act of justification prefigures the final act of Messiah's salvation. Having admonished Joshua, the angel of the Lord then addresses Joshua and his friends. Now listen, Joshua the high priest, again pointing to his position. You and your friends who are sitting in front of you, who would be sitting with him? It would be the other priests that serve alongside him. And then he says this, note this, middle of the verse, indeed they are men who are a symbol. In the Old Testament prophets, the prophets were all often looking both at near fulfillments and far fulfillments. And it was not often clear to them what's near, what's going to be fulfilled now, and what's far, what's going to be fulfilled in the millennium and beyond and into eternity. Here, he's being told, this isn't just about you. This is about somebody else and something else. This is beyond you. This is on into the future this is symbolic. Yes, you're being forgiven, but there's another kind of forgiveness coming. And what am I going to be doing? Verse 8, end of the verse. For behold, I am bringing in my servant, 
the branch. A servant was used for a variety of God's human servants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Job, David, Hezekiah, all called God's servants. But it was used particularly of the great servant of God, the Messiah. We find that Isaiah 42, Isaiah 53, 11. This is the servant who will suffer to accomplish the salvation of his people. And notice how I identifies the servant in this verse. My servant, the branch. That's another messianic title. In fact, if you just turn a page to chapter 6, verse 12, then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, the man whose name is Branch. And what's the implication of the word branch? He will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord and he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Thus he will be a priest on his throne and the council of peace will be between the two offices. So this branch is one who will grow up from nothing, from his Davidic roots into something that is magnificent and he will rule for eternity on the Davidic throne and he will serve as priest and king from that throne. That's the combination of those two offices. So when he says, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch, he's talking about the coming of the Messiah to serve as Messiah and Redeemer for the people. And then he amplifies that again. Verse 9. Behold the stone that I beset before Joshua. Again another title for Messiah. The stone. And on that one stone or seven eyes. Don't get too wrapped around the seven eyes. It might be a reference to his omniscience and wisdom. The, the eyes are used in that, in that way. Um, in other places in the scriptures. Revelation 5 points to the seven eyes. As being a reference to the Holy Spirit. It could be that he's referring to the Holy Spirit. It's unclear, but we aren't given the explanation, but we are given an explanation of what's written on the stone. And that's what's important about the stone. I will engrave an inscription on it, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove iniquity of that land in one day. Of that land. Which land? Israel. On one day. Which day? The final day of salvation for Israel. When the nation of Israel will finally be brought in with Messiah as king, as her king, and he will rule on his throne for her. This is Israel's final salvation and it will come through the Messiah. This is, this is the passage that we read earlier this morning, Romans 11. So all Israel will be saved just as it is written. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove all ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is that day. I'm coming. And I'm going to act finally and fully. For all the blessings that came for forgiveness, through forgiveness, for forgiveness, to Joshua revealed in the vision to Zechariah, there is an even greater day of blessing coming when the Messiah rules on his throne. And that is a further and final implication of this passage. God's cleansing act of justification will result in a time of unprecedented blessing. In that day, which day? The one day of Israel's salvation. 
declares the Lord of hosts. God Almighty is making this declaration, says the angel of hosts, the one who is supreme and above all other armies, the one who is sovereign in all of his works, makes this declaration. Every one of you, Joshua, and all who Joshua represents as the high priest, all the nation will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Remember, the nation is fearful. What's Medo-Persia going to do? And they're looking out and saying, where's the next battle coming from? And he says, on that day, no more battle. Nobody's talking about where's the oppression going to come from. Nobody is saying, where's the difficulty going to come from? On that day, every one of you will invite your neighbor to come to a time of blessing and peace. That little phrase, the vine and the fig tree, denote the blessing and prosperity of God. There's a number of places uh, you can go in the Old Testament to find it. Micah 4.4 is an excellent example of it. That in the final end... The vine will produce its fruit. The fig tree will produce its fruit. And then the nation will sit under it and enjoy the prosperity of God's provision. Whatever the nation would accomplish in that day, Joshua's day, Zechariah's day, by rebuilding the temple, there's an even greater day coming when Messiah brings full and lasting peace and prosperity. Oh, brother, oh, sister, whatever the trouble today, whatever the blessing and prosperity today, there's a time of even greater prosperity and blessing coming when there will be fullness of peace and eternal absence of war. The Messiah will make it so. How can we summarize this vision? I like what The old commentator Charles Feinberg said, We do well to turn from the men of wonder to the man Christ Jesus, who is the wonderful, the Prince of Peace. Father, thank you for this reminder of the amazement of what you have done in declaring us righteous through justification. And thank you for the wonder of the Messiah of Israel who is not just Israel's Savior, but He is ours also. Might we rest in Him, be content in Him, be transformed by Him, and be transformed to Him because of what we find in Him. We pray in His name. Amen.